good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to this week's edition of 17 Minutes of Science. My name is Ben Jusla, and I'm a scientist with Invivo Biosystems. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, uh, Dr. Oliver Black. Um, he is an associate professor at the uh, University College of Dublin, the School of Biomolecular and Biomedical Sciences. Uh, he heads a uh, human disease research group there, and uh, as for today, the focus of today's talk, um, makes use of the model system Sinorhabditis elegans and rare disease research, uh, focusing on primary cilia biology uh, and the diseases associated with that. So um, thank you for joining us today, Oliver, um, and I'll, I'll let you uh, provide any additional background you'd like there. No, that was great. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to do this. Yeah, we're um, we're always happy to have our, our C. elegans folks uh, join us here. Um, and uh, rare disease research and model organism biology is very near and dear to me. So, um, and so it turns out is primary cilia research. So it is a double pleasure to have you with us today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and kick things off with our 17 minute timer. And I will dive right in. And as I've, I've, I've maybe hinted at this a little too much, but uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your lab primarily focuses on for your, your research goals? Yeah, so, so yeah, sure. So, so, I mean, my lab is interested in a class of human disease called the ciliopathies that you've basically mentioned briefly. Uh, and so maybe I'll tell you a little bit about those. So these are genetically inherited disorders and in fact affect the development uh, and even the maintenance of many tissues and organs. In fact, most body tissues and organs are probably affected across the, the, the disease class. And so you see things like blindness, cystic kidneys, uh, obesity, organs pattern on the wrong side, malformation of yeah. bones, things like infertility. And there's about 20 different types of ciliopathies actually. And about 200 genes linked to this disease class. So it's pretty big in terms of its gene uh, variation. Uh, many of these diseases are syndromic. So patients actually have lots of these symptoms. Some of them are non-syndromic. So they may just have one symptom. Uh, some of these diseases are, are very severe, like Meckel-Gruber syndrome. And so it could be lethal and some are milder. Okay, but yet still pretty debilitating. Now they're rare affect about one in 100,000 people, most of them. Some of them, like autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease is actually very common. So in fact, that's the, probably the most common genetically inherited disorder. And the thing they all have in common is a defect in cilia. So, you know, my lab is interested in ciliopathies, but of course we're interested in this little tiny structure on the surface of cells. And um, we try and understand what these cilia do, and we try and understand what the ciliopathy genes do in cilia. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for for that overview. And yeah, that's um, I mean, that's my uh, my my understanding and my my experience is that yeah, there's there the more that you look, the more it seems, especially over the last I don't know five to ten years, it seems like there it's you're uncovering more and more. Oh, it's actually involved in this. Oh, these tissues are ciliated. Oh, we find that this thing localizes to the primary cilia. Um, so it's it seems to kind of have its its hands, so to speak, and and yeah. just about everything that you can find either directly or indirectly. Um, can you tell us, I guess, a little bit more about cilia and why they are linked in in so many of these these human disorder, human diseases and disorders, and these polygenic disorders? 
Sure. Well, maybe I'll reiterate they're very tiny. That's the first thing. They're about a micron long or maybe up to 10 microns, so pretty small. Uh, they can be motile. Most people would know about the beating flagella that moves the sperm cell around or the motile sully in the epithelial tract, pushing mucus out of the lungs. But actually, most of our cells have a non-motile version of sully. These are called primary sully because it's about one per cell. And these little primary sully, they act as little sensory devices for cells. You know, they're like a little GPS sensor for the cell. And so good examples of that would be in the sensory systems, for example, sensing taste compounds and light and odorants. And these uh, are on sensory neurons in our nose and our taste buds. But that all of the primary cilia internally in our internal organs, you know, they do things too. For a long time, we actually thought these cilia were some kind of appendix of the cell, some kind of vestigial remnant of when maybe all cells were beating around in fluids. Uh, but actually, we know most of these primary cilia do things too. And they sense very important internal molecules that cells use to communicate with each other. So cells must communicate with each other during development and tissue homeostasis to build a proper kind of structure. Cells have to regulate their division. They have to regulate their differentiation properties. And the only way they can coordinate this is by sending signals to one another. So one cell might release a signal sensed by neighboring cells. Well, you probably guessed what sense says that signal. So the psyllium is a primary part of the surface of cells that actually senses those signals because they have lots of channels that are important for the sensing mechanism. And when the psyllium senses a signal, it can then transduce the signal to the nucleus, for example, or maybe non-nuclear signals. And that tells the cell how to behave appropriately. So I guess in a nutshell, yeah, primary psyllium, they're, they're like these little GPS signal receivers. They're essential for cell behavior. And of course, that's essential for, for developmental processes, which is probably why you see developmental defects in ciliopathies. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, and they're so, they're so one, they're so ubiquitous and two, they have, yeah. they, it seems like they've got, they're fitted out with all the things they've got mechanosensory, they've got ligands, they've got all right. of these different receptors and everything. And they're, they're involved in like the patterning from, from square one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, you know, some of the most important developmental cell cell communication signaling molecules like sonic hedgehogs So any developmental biologist listening in here will know about that, or some of the wingless molecules or some growth factors, you know, the receptors to those signaling agents are frequently highly clustered in the ciliary part of the cell surface. So for some reason, cells have evolved this psyllium as a place on the surface of cells to house these sensory molecules, presume, or signaling molecules, presumably because you can regulate the signaling pathways better by having them in a defined place. Um, it, we don't exactly know how that might have happened. There are plenty of theories. But that's certainly the context to this little organelle signaling function, I think. Yeah, it's, I, I mean, I, I can see why they maybe initially thought that it was sort of the um, appendix of the cell, but it seems like it is actually completely opposite, that it is a very crucial and, and essential component and that it actually houses a lot of things. Um, I mean, I know that the, the appendix has also gotten a lot of crap and <laughs> over the years, but it serves important yeah. functions. But um, so, okay, so so that's that kind of lays the groundwork for how it's how cilia are related to human diseases. 
Um, so what diseases are you currently focused on? Um, I, I know that there are a lot and there are a lot of different aspects um, within, even within, you know, syndromic ciliopathies. So are there certain ones that you're focusing on right now? Yeah, there are actually. So we're, we're particularly interested in one of the diseases called Joubert syndrome um, and a related disease. Well, they're all related, I guess, for ciliopathies, but particularly related to Joubert's Meckel-Gruber syndrome. And uh, Joubert syndrome patients are actually diagnosed by a characteristic malformation in their brains, um, which you see in an MRI. It's called the molar tooth sign. And that's because those patients have defects in midbrain and hindbrain structures. The cerebellar vermis, for example, is disrupted. And, and patients therefore have, you know, um, motor and speech problems, you know, various types of muscle twitching and, and, and intellectual issues. And they also suffer from other symptoms and other organs, as you might imagine, for ciliopathy, like eye problems, blindness, cystic kidneys. And so we're interested in Joubert. Uh, not just for that reason, but also because all of the Joubert or many of the Joubert proteins, so the genes mutated in Joubert, the, the encoded proteins, they're all clustered right at the bottom of the solium. It's really quite fascinating. So the bottom of the solium, there's a little subcompartment, which we call the transition zone. It's only about 0.1 to 1 microns in length. It's the first little piece of the solium. And we think this little part of the solium acts as a kind of gate it's a regulated gate because we can't have molecules just wandering in and out of the cilia. It's such an important mm -hmm. organelle for signaling. We have to control the composition of the cilia. So this little gate at the base seems to regulate what's allowed in and what's not. So we think it does that by establishing some kind of molecular diffusion barriers. So there's diffusion barriers at the membrane at the cytosol of this base region at the gate. And somehow the Joubert syndrome proteins are part of this. They're clustered there. We think some of them could be part of the structure of the gate, which we don't fully understand that structure yet. And I can talk about that in a little bit. But I find the ciliary gate fascinating because in all of biology, we wonder how does signal, how do pieces of the plasma membrane get compartmentalized? How do you make a little patch different from another? The ciliary membrane is a unique patch of the plasma membrane. And having these barriers at the base is a way in which you can regulate the uniqueness of the ciliary membrane. And, and in fact, we know very little about barriers regulating any patch of any plasma membrane surface. The cilium is a really good test case to actually try and understand this important basic problem. And because Joubert intersects with that part of the cilium and is somehow part of the barrier regulation, I find that very interesting test case to actually bring to my lab. Yeah, no, that's um, it's for for being such a small a small actual space within the cell. There is a lot that happens there, and it's it's got just a myriad functions that that are disrupted when you when you mess with that zone or that compartment. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm 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 sitting here lost in thought a little bit about my, like what a, my old days looking at transition zone proteins, and the, it's just a, it is a long list of of genes that are that are involved there, localized there. Yeah, there's a whole bunch there and there's been some great studies trying to understand the interactome of the transition zone. We know different protein complexes in there. And the other cool part about that part of the psyllium is it's right stuck at the beginning of a railroad track using microtubules. So there's another track, there's a system in C. elegant or in cilia, I should say, whereby proteins are moved in with motors out of the psyllium mm -hmm. into the organelle. And the first part of the track 
has to actually go through this transition zone barrier. And we think there's some really interesting connections and crosstalk between the gate, which is like the exit to the train station, if you will, and these motor driven um, uh, assemblies, which are bringing things into and out of Solia. Well, yeah, so that, that kind of helps me um, transition to one of the next questions here. So how are C. elegans suited to, to this kind of research? Um, so, I mean, you know, I, you can imagine that if I'm thinking about a syndromic human disorder, I've got eyes, I've got a spinal cord, I've got a bunch of things a worm doesn't, but what, so, so can you, maybe you can shed a little light on that. Well, I'm very good in this question from trying to rebut reviewers' comments from grant applications over many years. Why would you want to use worms to understand cellular biology? Well, there's a whole bunch of reasons. So the first thing, you know, the, the genes that build and maintain cilia, they tend to be conserved in C. elegans. Second thing is many of the ciliopathy genes are conserved in C. elegans. So, for example, there's 35 Joubert syndrome genes that cause Joubert syndrome in humans. Uh, 23 of them, I think, are conserved in C. elegans. And so therefore, we can actually understand and study the, how these disease genes function in the context of a simpler organism like C. elegans. It's simpler, but it still conserves the pathways and components. And that's very, very important. And for, for example, in the case of Joubert syndrome, the transition zone, the human Joubert syndrome proteins are also stuck in the transition zone, just like the worm ones. So we've got very good conservation of biology. Even the complexes that are formed between the different Joubert syndrome proteins at the transition zone seem to be very similar. So great conservation, and we can use that to our advantage in C. elegans. Of course, worms, like any model organism, like Drosophila or yeast, some great genetic tools. We can manipulate genes very easily. We can knock out genes at will. And recently, using CRISPR, Cas9, and hopefully I have time to say something about this later, you know, we can do gene editing and make very specific changes in the gene. And that's very, very useful for understanding very specific mutations in human disease. Of course, with C. elegans, we've got a transparent organism, so imaging is great. We can even do super-resolution microscopy using STED. We've actually done STED microscopy in living worms on the slide. We published that data, and in fact, using that, we were able to define maybe one of the first architectures for the, for the transition zone diffusion barrier, so that was very exciting. And of course, in C. elegans, we've got speed, of, of, of experimentation and cost, very important, not expensive. Yeah. 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 I mean, just to, I mean, for any other, you know, organism, I guess, higher order, I, I, I don't like to always say that that way, but I, I feel like that's the gentlest way to say it. Um, any, you know, vertebrate models, even zebrafish that are supposedly more high throughput, they, they can't hold a candle to see elegance in terms of, of throughput and speed yeah. and ease of manipulation. That's right. That's right. And the C. elegans community are super collaborative. Of course, the zebrafish community are as well. I don't want to uh, hold anything against any individual community. But, you know, for example, when CRISPR-Cas9 was first discovered, uh, you know, only in the early 2010-2011, the C. elegans community jumped on this. And within a couple of years, they had developed really robust techniques because the community needed it. Everything was shared from the very beginning. And, and, and this type of, of, of uh, environment really helped to push technical developments in the worm field. And I think that that's one of the reasons the elegans you know, can be and is very successful you know, as a model for, for many different things. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm just keeping an eye on time here. 
Um, so one of the next questions here is that uh, many people use C. elegans to study disease, but you've chosen specifically to focus on rare diseases. Um, and I maybe would like to roll that into another question of, um, is there one particular project that you're working on right now in the rare disease space that you'd like to tell us a little bit more about and, and why you're focusing on a, on a rare disease as opposed to maybe a more, more abundant yeah. or more popular, you know, more uh, well, disorder? Yeah, well, pure serendipity. I fell into the rare disease field purely by chance because as a postdoc, uh, we were interested in Bardet Beetle syndrome back in 2003, knew nothing about it, and then basically figured out it has something to do with cilia. And as any scientist will know, once you have some success and make some discoveries, suddenly that becomes your interest. So then I became a cilia biologist. I was using C. elegans, and so therefore I became a C. elegans geneticist. Well, that probably took 10 more years. And so because cilia, so many of the diseases are rare, I, I guess I became a rare disease biologist. I would also say that I think every, every person deserves their illness to be addressed in the lab. And, and I, I do take some level of satisfaction in knowing that some ignored diseases are actually being addressed, for example, by my lab. So I think from that sort of point of view, it's, it's quite satisfying. In terms of the second part of your question, yeah, so I mean, I, if I could turn back to Joubert syndrome as an example of something we're doing in my lab, I mean, we're very interested in trying to interpret human genetic variation in C. elegans. So one of the big problems that has arisen from genome sequencing is that we now know of many, many different mutations in genes in patients. But many of those mutations, we actually have no idea if they're actually disrupting gene function or not. And so the clinical geneticists, when they come to classify for particular missense mutation, for example, is causative, they often have to say, well, we just don't know. And they classify those types of mutations as variants of uncertain significance, VU, uh, or VUS, if you're less posh, I guess, as somebody said in my lab. <laughs> and, and so we, we, we need ways to understand if these variants are actually causing disease. You know? So uh, we need ways to reclassify VUS to either pathogenic or benign. Very important for patients because the clinical geneticists, you know, if they have a VU classification, you can't push that patient into disease management as quickly. And it also prevents that patient from accessing things like gene therapy trials. So we have to reclassify them. So we've been doing this in C. elegans. We've been basically knocking in using gene editing, the very same mutations that you find in patients into the worm version of the gene. And then we look at the worm phenotypes and ask, well, you know, do we see defects in cilia or not? If we do see defects in cilia, we would say that this is pathogenic likely. If we don't see defects in cilia, we would say it's benign. And we've done this actually on two different Joubert genes and so far it's been great. The pathogenic mutations, the missense mutations turn out to be pathogenic in the worm. The benign ones turn out to be benign. And of the VUs we've looked at in two genes, some of them turn out to look like pathogenic, some turn out to look like benign. And we would hope that this type of data is evidence to reclassify VU and in a way to provide a route to diagnosis for, for patients carrying these mutations. And, and, and we think this is very, very important. We're also trying to validate some of our data in human cells uh, so we could have two models perhaps providing a combined piece of evidence to, to help with the reclassification of these very important mutations. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's that's very, very near and dear to our hearts. Um, we've, you know, doing doing a lot of humanization, similar humanization work to to figure out, OK, 
a lot of these patients for these, these severe debilitating disorders, they don't have years to wait. They, they don't have, and, or they don't have a gigantic, you know, body of funding and, and research focused on them. So I, you know, C. elegans for the reasons that you mentioned before, the speed, the amenability to, to genetic manipulation, those are all things that are really well suited to, to modeling these and, and addressing these questions in a rapid and effective manner. Exactly, exactly. I mean, you could, if you had uh, several people in a team, you could easily make, you know, 100, 200 mutations quite quickly, in fact, with really efficient CRISPR editing. It only takes two to three weeks to go the idea of having a worm drain, you know, and, and, and this is a very clean experiment. Um, and, and thus, with good assays, good quantification assays, comparing everything to a null allele, you can really classify the effect in C. elegans very robustly, for sure. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know if you heard our, our timer went off uh, yes. here, but we're, we're on a good train of thought. So I wanted to let us uh, uh, see that to the station. Um, yeah, no, this is a, thank you so much for, for talking, talking with us about this. I think the work that you're doing is you, extremely impressive and important. Um, your, um, I mean, your publication record is phenomenal. And I've, I, spe I spent a little time this morning crawling through it and it's like, oh, I know that one. Oh, I know that one. Oh, I need to read that one and that one and that one. Uh, but there's, there's a lot of really cool work to be done. I'm glad to see researchers like you out there um, you know, focusing on this and really representing and advocating for the value of this, of this tool and this system to address these questions. Well, thank you, Ben. I mean, it's, it's great to get some validation and, and I'm very excited also by what in vivo biosystems is doing on the root classification because we've noted how you're also using C. elegans to classify them. And, <laughs> and that is great validation for the work we do. And um, yeah, no, I appreciate the comments and um, I look forward to talking again sometime, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, likewise. Um, well, everybody, thank you for joining us today on this episode of 17-ish Minutes of Science. Um, we will uh, post all of the, uh, we'll post the video, uh, some links to uh, Oliver's work um, so you can learn more about what they're doing. Um, and uh, until then, stay safe, stay well, and uh, we'll see you next time.